Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jorge Torres, CEO and co-founder of MindsDB, an in-database machine learning platform that raised $50 million in funding. Jorge, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here. No problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, of course. Well, my name is Jorge Torres, as you said. I'm the CEO of MindsDB. I've been in technology for a long time, for as long as I can remember. I've loved computers, and every time... I touch one, I still, I still, or I marvel about how powerful this technology is. You know, the fact that we can build something in our computers and provide value to hundreds or thousands or millions of people. And I think that that has always been my motivation to build stuff. For a long time, I've always dreamt about helping companies to, you know, leverage the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning to, to accomplish their goals. And now we live in this very interesting times where that is no longer science fiction. It's actually very true. And it just happens to be that we've been doing this for a few years now, and, and we're just kind of like in the middle of of the best technology game that is being played at the moment, which is this old pipe, artificial intelligence. Michael Connor and I, we met in Australia over a decade ago, uh, back at university. And even back then, we realized that this was going to be big. And we had a previous company that also was in the area of artificial intelligence, but it was too early and we basically failed fantastically. But we took all the learnings from that one and we started this one in early 2018. And yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey so far. Was that company Data CRM? No, that company was real life analytics. Data CRM still is alive. That's a company I co-founded with a childhood friend of mine. And, and yeah, they're still kicking. It's just that it didn't apply machine learning or it didn't have any use cases for machine learning back then. And therefore it wasn't, it wasn't within my, my core motivations, but the company works well. It's, it's essentially the nature of being an entrepreneur is that once you do it once, you always want to try it again. And, and therefore my ZB is the third, third try it. And a few other questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, well, I have many founders that I admire a lot. I think that given the nature of MyZB being open source, I admire fantastic open source founders. Uh, a company that I like a lot, Confluent, Jay, I think he's phenomenal. He's done from the point of view of an observer, because you know, once you're internally, there might be a lot of players that you're not aware of, but from the spectator point of view, they've done everything the right way. I think that Mulgo and the founders of Mulgo, I think that there's, there's a lot of lessons that we still continue to learn from those companies. I admire, of course, entrepreneurs that face the general public opinion of what you're doing is the wrong approach to solving a problem. And then they end up proving people wrong. And I think that that to me is, is always fascinating. You know, like at the end, most startups are bad ideas until they're not. And I think that what I try to do is not just to pick one single 
founder or one single company, I try to look at those companies where MindZB could be learning from, and I turn them into into kind of like an aspiration for ourselves as a company and myself as a, as a co-founder. And what about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder and, and really just as a as a human? The way we like to frame that question is uh, is we ask for quick books. So it's a phrase coined by Ryan Holiday, and he defined a quick book as a book that like rocks you to your core. It changes your worldview. Do any quick books come to mind for you? So I don't know if quick in terms of quick to read, but certainly I love reading science fiction because I think that science fiction inspires a lot of technology innovations. And then the other way around, technology innovations inspire science fiction. So there's like this synergy between those two that I like. And there are four, everything that is about science fiction and kind of futuristic ideas of how the world is going to play out. I love to read about those because then internally, it feels like we can be participants of forging that future. And, and also we can use those as, as visionaries rather than just pure fiction. I like, of course, like most of us that are in this field, uh, the foundation series. I like the um, culture series uh, by Ian Banks. I think that those books are, are phenomenal. And, and especially in the place we are where AI is evolving really quick. Those books were based on the idea that AI and any sentient being is part of a society. And again, intelligent human-like species, they are part of that society, but also AI. And we collaborate to accomplish goals that are grand. And, and I love that idea. It's a perfect segue to dive deeper into AI. So from your perspective, you know, being in this space and, and being a deeply involved expert, how do you describe the state of AI today? I describe it as kind of like the end of the AI dark ages, if you may. You know, there was a lot of research in AI that took a long time for all the pieces to fit together. You know, the compute needed to evolve. The frameworks on top of that compute needed to evolve so that a lot of ideas that have been around for a long time could be applied. And then collaboration needed to evolve to the point of today where anything that any researcher, not researcher, affiliator or not to a university could share the output of their research and then that output to be utilized by another researcher to even bring the frontier of understanding even further. Those things are only converging today and they're making the pace at which we understand innovation in our intelligence changes every day. I think that today you may learn one thing and then tomorrow someone is going to publish something else that actually moves the frontier of our understanding of it. And given that there's so many individuals collaborating to this, to this task, we're getting to the point where AI is actually very useful for a lot of tasks that before were pretty much science fiction. The fact that computers now can understand language in many occasions better than humans can, it's phenomenal because language is such a fundamental tool for humans to build anything. I think that it's, it's probably the biggest augmentator of, of capabilities for us. So that's where I see it today. The future, you know, still there's a lot of expectations and there's a lot of unknowns, but as of today, I just think that is the most fascinating time to be alive if you're in technology. You can be participant of the improvements that we're making to an objective of artificial intelligence. That objective is different for each individual, but yeah, that's where I see it today. Are there any unknowns that you're afraid of or you find particularly scary? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that 
pursuing general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, it's a dangerous goal to pursue. I believe that maybe we shouldn't be doing that. And I can elaborate more in that if you want. But yeah, I'm afraid of that one there. Yeah, if you want to elaborate on that, that'd be awesome. I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, I think that understanding general artificial intelligence as artificial intelligence that should learn like humans do and better than humans do and perform tasks that are human tasks better than humans do in all dimensions is dangerous because it takes us in very tricky ways. For instance, humans are really good at being self-aware. And again, there are humans that are better at this than others, but self-awareness is a, is a fantastic human skill. And if we were to power computers with that, then how can you have a system that, that is meant to, to augment our capabilities when you actually, at the end, are going to have to convince the systems to do their job? You know, One thing is to have very good AI that can augment you, and another one is to have AI that is aware of its position and its role in society, and then that, in, in my opinion, trickles into autonomy. Again, humans are also really good at you know, becoming autonomous and self-sufficient. And if that is the case, then we're end up having systems that we're going to have to convince to do the, the tasks that we need to do. And, and that's not the, the goal. So I do think that there are human traits that we should never, ever have on artificial intelligence systems. And they fall within the umbrella of AGI. For instance, survival. Like humans are phenomenal at surviving, and we have been doing it since the ice ages until today. If we were to empower AI with surviving capabilities, then there'll be a disaster. So I just truly believe that pursuing AGI, it's a stupid endeavor and we shouldn't. But I think that we should pursue phenomenal artificial intelligence. And that is artificial intelligence that is bound by some rules that limit where we want AI to be better than us and where we definitely don't want to have AI any type of capability, such as survival, self-awareness, etc. Hmm. Super fascinating. Now, I'd love to switch gears here a bit and dive deeper into MindsDB. So can you just give us maybe the elevator pitch at a very high level? What do you do? Yeah, we help enterprises apply artificial intelligence into their systems. And we do this in a way that is democratic by the virtue of being open source. We want to guarantee that no matter how big your organization is, you can still leverage on the topmost outputs of AI for your business. And we do this initially by empowering developers to build AI applications in a way that is natural to them. I think that one number that is still striking for us is there's about 30 million developers out there. There's about 100,000 really good machine learning engineers. And, and therefore, most companies cannot afford to you know have a top-notch AI ML engineer. But what they can do is they can turn their existing engineers and software developers into ML engineers with the proper tooling. And that's what we, what we do for them. And again, all within the scope of applied machine learning, that is, or applied AI, which is taking AI to pursue a goal that will make those companies be more effective at what they do and provide more value to their, to their customers. So that, that's, that's what we do. And take me back to February 2018 when you were first launching the company. What were those early conversations like with your co-founders and investors and, and colleagues and friends? What were those early conversations like? And what was it about this problem that made you say, yep, that's it. Let's go all in and solve it. Yeah, I think that at the time, 
So this is a good five, six years after deep learning became a thing. You know, deep learning is 2012. And we were seeing how our understanding of machine learning was changing so much that the systems eventually will become so ubiquitous if there was a proper tooling for engineers to adopt them. So the gap that we saw was, okay, this technology is going to get exponentially better. And all we need to do is to guarantee that there's a framework for people that are not in charge of the moving the frontier of understanding of, of AI and machine learning so they can just take whatever is the outcome of that and apply it. And I think that when we initially had these conversations with people, there's always a division between, you know, believers and optimists, and then there's course the ones that do things one way and are reluctant to change. So when we came to the conclusion that any developer could apply machine learning, some people thought, well, you know, that's that's impossible because it takes, you know, a PhD for you to actually be able to do really good good stuff with AI. But we we also know that researchers are not application developers and the world is moved by application developers. So we, we knew that if, if there wasn't a tool to connect those two worlds, enterprises were not going to be able to adopt this. So I think that early on, we really saw that gap. I just think that it takes quite a while for those things to, to gain the momentum that, that we have gained. And I think that of those early conversations, the ones that were the most fruitful were, are we going to open source MySCP or not? And having made that decision from the very beginning to be an open source project and then product has landed us where we are at the moment, where we're one of the main players in the state right now. And can you give us an idea of scale that you're operating at today? So any numbers or metrics that you can share, our audience loves to hear metrics. Yeah. So MyZB in terms of open source has been deployed now more than 150,000 times. This is via Docker and PIP. Again, the product evolved so much that still we will continue to produce for the open source until the existence of MyZB. But we also understand that we need to be a business. So we started a cloud version of MyZB. And initially, this was a way for people to test MyZB before they deployed it locally. So the demo cloud of MyZB has about 13,000 users. And then as of a few months ago, now quarter, we started to provision dedicated instances for MyZB, which we call MyZB Pro. And we're now at about 120 customers there. So now we understand better the funnel. You know, we'll continue to provide for the open source. They can deploy it in whatever shape and fashion they want. But at the end, the more sophisticated MySB becomes, the more complex it becomes to deploy it yourself. And there's there's a lot of value for people to go and try it on a on a hosted version of MySB. And we're optimizing that funnel. We're making sure that the experience that the first 10 customers that we had, we can provide for for many more. And right now that's a learning curve for us. You know, how do we guarantee that the experience that someone had a few years ago when they went and deployed locally and, and they were happy with it is the same experience that they'll have five years from now and that we can provide that experience to, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what do you attribute to that success and the growth and the traction that you're seeing? What do you think you've gotten right? I think that so being surrounded by the right people at the end, Adam and I 
we're co-founders of this, but we, we've been a startup all this time and, and therefore every individual that has joined minus B behaves pretty much like a co-founder because there are so many hats that anyone has to wear at any given time. So MyZP success is a fruit of everyone that has been involved in MyZP. And then when I say everyone is the core team of MyZP, which is small, uh, we're less than 30 people. And again, MyZP could not be what MyZP is today without them. Then there is the contributors that are in the open source. MyZP could not be what MyZP is today without the incredible contribution of hundreds of people. We have more than 500 contributors out there. One of the cool things about MyZP is that virtually any place where you have data, MyZP can, can go and get this data from, and, and, and the output of MyZP's machine learning capabilities can be put back into anywhere where you need that data to be. And most of those integrations are being built by community. So if you were to pin down one thing is, is people. And, and again, the last part would be, of course, our different stakeholders, investors, MyZB, they all come with, of course, money on the one hand, which is important to execute a strategy, but they come with experience and an experience that, that is crucial, especially when a lot of what we do that is not core to the, the product, but core to the operations of the business, the uh, go-to-market strategy, et cetera, many of them have done this in the past, so we can learn from them. I think there's a lot of talk out there about the benefits of going the open source route, but there's not a lot of talk about the downsides. Can you share some of the downsides of being open source? I think that there are very few in the great scheme of things. Now, again, I drank this cool at 100%, so the answer that I'm going to give to you is as biased as it can get. If there isn't one downside is that if you're moving in a non-open source project and you want to take a strategy where you take one or two customers and then you guarantee that your product works exactly as those two customers want, then you don't have to think about so many different variables. You just think of those two customers and whatever feedback that they give you, that is your product roadmap. In an open source project, you have an overwhelming number of variables and understanding what is noise, what is not noise is very difficult. And then there's a lot of lack of observability in the open source just by virtue of the open source nature where you do something, you send it out there, and then people will give you feedback in a way that is not the natural way that you would do it if you just have one customer that calls you and tells you this is what doesn't work. You know, people do it either via GitHub issues, and it takes the right amount of combination of hate and love for you to put a GitHub issue out there. You really have to, have to love the product and hate it so much that you go and put the GitHub issue in hopes that someone will, will fix it for you. So I think that that's probably the only downside that I see is that if you're not developing in the open source, you have less variables to deal with. And therefore, if the people are giving you those variables are a good representation of your uh, full market, then that may be a faster route. Super interesting. Now, talk to me a little bit about your market category. How do you think about your market category? Is it AI intelligence? logic? Is it in-database machine learning platform? What is that market category? Yeah. So the way that we see it and the way that we will see it can change a little bit because right now the categories are being defined. But um, we understand that there's enterprise data and enterprise data is defined by the data category. You, know, you have like the databases, data warehouses, streaming, etc. And then you have the applications and MyZB understands that there needs to be a plug between those two, uh, pipe, if you may. 
So we call that pipe the logic or the AI logic layer. And that's where we're playing. We are, we're a pipe between the application and where people have data. And we live in this world where all these applications are now AI-centric applications, or, or they will be AI-centric applications. And the only way that you can turn them into AI-centric applications is if your logic layer is also an AI logic layer. That's, that's what we do. And as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $50 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising? Are there any lessons that you could share with founders listening in? Yeah, I think that we've learned a lot of things in the journey that may be tools that other founders can use. And there are other things that are specific to MySP. But I think that in the narrow ones or in the generic type of advice that I can give is if you're an open source project, then there are investors that really understand how open source works. And therefore, in the journey of fundraising, you should try to optimize for talking to investors that have invested in open source in the past because they, they speak the same the same language, they understand the challenges, they understand where you're supposed to be. Bringing investors that have not done open source in the past, or even trying to talk to investors, they will put you in a different framework. And sometimes it is really hard to ignore feedback from investors. And when the feedback comes from someone that hasn't done open source in the past, it, they may take you in routes that are not the right ones. So yes, advice number one is, depending on the nature of your software, if you're, if you're producing software, or a technology or platform. If it's open source, then definitely there is a well-established and very mature investment market for open source companies. Go and find them and meet them. And I think that that's one. I think that the second one is the value of accelerators and incubators. I believe that when you start a company, you have like this crazy amount of variables that you don't know. And the true value of an incubator and accelerator is to allow you to work on figure out those variables with like at least some capital that you can use to move your idea into a project. And I think that if I could advise to any entrepreneur, try to find one, be it Y Combinator, be it Skydick, you know, there, there's, there's a handful of those, but try to find one because they will give you enough of a tooling for the steps ahead. And also they'll provide a lot of validation for investors on the line. And I think that the last one for me, this concept of not all money is green only became evident as I started to, to face really difficult challenges in the company. And that's when you really start to understand that an investor that is active makes a huge difference. Of course, money is super important and money is a vehicle to accomplish your objectives. And if people are giving you money, then of course you should make the best exercise to understand from whom to take this money. But face on, on to investors really try to or when you have to decide between a couple of investors, try to understand which one is going to give you the most value outside of that money. And that value will come in the, in the most needed time because companies face so many different challenges. And so many of those as an entrepreneur, especially if you're like an early entrepreneur, you will not know the answers until you have like a brainstorming partner. And usually investors are fantastic at that because they see so many variables. And if you have one that has done it before, then you're making a decision that is a data-driven decision. It's not your data, it's the data they collected. As you said, it's you know really becoming clear right now. I was talking with a really good friend of mine the other week, and he's raised like a $140 million for his company, you know, they unicorn company, all, all that good stuff. And he said he you know goes to the board to try to you know, talk through some of these problems, and 
they provide zero help. You know, they agree it's a very difficult environment right now. It's a you know, tough place to be. But he said that's about as far as they get. And the board is essentially useless in the capacity to support him, help him navigate, you know, help him build out of this. And I thought that was just very fascinating to hear because I think the buzz in 2020, 2021 was, you know, you just need cash, cash of everything. And it doesn't matter who the investor is. You don't even want the investors involved. But it seems like now that's being uncovered to be a mistake and a challenge that a lot of founders are dealing with. Yeah. We even faced this like on this last round, we were getting offers at almost twice the valuation of what we ended up taking. And, and granted, our valuation was, I think, is perfect. But we made the decision based on, okay, what is the investor that we're going to bring into the table that will make this company 10 times better? And Mayfield, in this case, was the right candidate. Uh, Naveen has taken so many companies public. He's, he was in HashiCorp. So th- there are so many elements that we took into consideration that had nothing to do with the money at all. Because at the end, at some point, as you see, like sometimes the markets become a little bit crazy. So there's a lot of availability for money. But the thing that we want to avoid is what you're describing to your friend, which is, okay, you take this money and really that money will get you somewhere, but challenges are going to face guaranteed. There's going to be challenges no matter what. And then it will be the people that you brought into the table that will say, okay, let me be a strategic partner to you. And that's what we're choosing at the moment. I'm not saying that we're doing it, like all the things perfect, but we also had similar experiences from friends of ours that face the same thing that your friend faced. And I think that right now we're trying to be very cautious about that. But the outcome of that is the advice that I was trying to summarize to to your audience is, look, if the market is giving you money, which there are always steps in the markets because they fluctuate, then when there's a lot of money, just be extra careful on who you choose for your team. And luckily, we've gone through like different cycles, but but I think that in every single step, we've brought very, very involved investors, and that has made a huge difference for us. And were you tempted to take those higher valuations? You know, how you describe it, you made it sound easy, but I have to imagine it's somewhat tempting when you're being offered, you know, these big valuations and and a lot of cash. Like, is that hard to say no to? And if so, how do you work through that in your mind to be more strategic and and go with a a valuation that you're more comfortable with? I think that, of course, it, it is really hard. It is really hard. But then it also makes it easier when you are not the other one making the decision. Like in this case, we already have a board of directors that was super involved. And I think that they helped us understand, okay, what is the right framework? And then for me, and this is for me alone, I don't know how it was for like the other decision makers at that time, because at the end we voted. But for me, the bar was, okay, all the people are giving us money. What are the ones that have been like the most involved? Like they may feel they were, if we needed to talk to them, Saturday night, 9 p.m., they will be there, you know, Sunday. They were they were there, like, discussing the terms, kind of, like, ideating. So, so for me, those variables made a huge difference, you know. Like, if they were disengaged now, there is a probability that they will be down the line. And I think that there were other funds that were like, okay, well, we can talk Monday or we can talk next week. And I think, okay, well, surely in the time of crisis of company, some of these decisions, you need to go and work on the weekend and figure them out. And I think that if anything you can take from this conversation is that in every interaction that you have with an investor, you will get probably a good amount of signals as how will it be to work with them after they invest. And again, one thing is to have an investor that is of value, and that's luckily what we've what we found. Another thing is to have an investor that gives you money and they don't add value other than the money. 
And then the last one is to have an investor that gives you money and they're also a pain in the butt. And that's the worst, you know, like I cannot imagine what would be the situation for your friend if they couldn't give him any advice, but also they were being a pain on their shoes. And I think that that's a one way to kill a company. So I believe that in every engagement that you have with investors, you will find variables that will help you assess this. It's the same as as when you bring friends to your circle of friends and, and things like that. So so humans were trained to like read these factors and and I think that investment shouldn't be any any exception of that. And final question, since I know we're getting close on time, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. Can you just paint a picture for us of that vision that you have for MindsDB? Yeah. So we know that every single application that exists today, and think about all of them, like email, calendar, CRM, ERP, internal tools, customer relationship tools, every SaaS tool that exists today will be reinvented with AI at its core. And we want to make sure that in the next year, every developer that is thinking of upgrading their infrastructure to an AI-centered infrastructure or any entrepreneur and their teams that are thinking of disrupting an existing technology with an AI-centered approach, that MySB can be part of the stack. At the end, we're an infrastructure company. So our objective is to guarantee that we, we are the choice of developers that are building enterprise or the applications with AI. And in five years, if you project that, then most of applications that exist today, we want MySQL to be part of the stack. Kind of like how today, if you think of MySQL, where they're part of the stack of so many of the web 2.0 applications, you know, they were the, the, the choice that most developers were choosing where they were building their web applications. I think that the journey of MySQL right now is to guarantee that the decisions that people are making today or what infrastructure they choose for their AI stack that MyCB is one of those. And therefore projected down five years on the line that we will be powering most of the AI tools that exist today. We are, we're not gonna be the next email AI driven application. We're gonna be providing the infrastructure for those applications to be feasible. Amazing. All right, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. If any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Slack. So we are super active in Slack and you can talk to not just me, my co-founder, our team, which again, as I was describing to you, everyone today at MySB, not only they're shareholders of MySB, but also they act as co-founders and therefore anyone on the team will be the best person to reach over there. They're super responsive and yeah, our goal is to maintain that for the foreseeable time. Amazing. Jorge, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building, and share some of these valuable lessons and insights that you've learned along the way. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I know the audience is going to as well. So really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Brett. All right. Keep in touch. Likewise. Pleasure being here. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 